Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking again with our frequent guest during this pandemic, Dr. Kenneth Johnson. He's the executive dean of the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and chief medical affairs officer at Ohio University. Dr. Johnson also serves as chair of the Ohio Council of Medical School Deans. Today, we talk about the COVID-19 virus and its dangers after the reopening of the country. Dr. Johnson, we're at a point where you and I are talking that all 50 states have started to reopen to varying degrees. Uh, we're, we're also at a point where many of the national polls show that a vast majority of Americans are afraid to go back out and re-enter society and reopen the economy. How do you bring those two things together instead of having them, them going in opposite directions? Yeah, you know, Tom, I think you know, people have been operating out of an abundance of caution, you know, sheltering in place. Uh, and, and I can understand the anxiety that there might be for, you know, entering life uh, as we as we knew it. And, and I my recommendation to people would be to exercise a similar level of caution as they're starting to redo those activities that they normally would. Now, if we hear governors around the country say, uh, okay, we're, re we're opening up, but those people who are in special categories, those people who are 65 years of age and older, those people who have some underlying health conditions, asthma, diabetes, uh, heart conditions, uh, respiratory difficulties, they should probably stay home and not be part of this first wave out. Uh, the, that word's coming from governors. Is that sound medical advice as well? Yeah, absolutely. I believe that's sound uh, medical advice. Those those folks who are in higher risk categories, I think, should be the the, the last wave to go ahead and start reentering and doing on uh, some of those on um, you know normal activities or on um, even thinking about work. It is working uh, not from home. <laughs> Well, if people do go out and they are in those suspect categories, uh, I know a mask is not 100% protection, but 
is it still recommended for those people? And and if so, is it highly recommended or just sort of casually recommended? Yeah, so I, I would say for everybody um, right now, particularly as we're trying to get to the other side of the curve here, uh, everybody should wear a mask. Um, if you're on, if two people have a mask and one is infected on, and you both are wearing a mask, your, your risk is low of, of, um, of getting the, the disease. And to me, that's the best way of, of breaking what I've been calling this corona cloud that's around people of, that's, that are infected and, and breathing out these droplets. We also hear that many people who are in these suspect categories and others are fearful to go back to industries that have opened, to plants that have opened, everything from the auto industry to meat packing. Uh, and they say, you know, we should have the right to stay home. We shouldn't be forced to go back out and put ourselves at, at risk. How do you respond to people who, who are making that argument? Well, I think that as businesses reopen, uh, I definitely think it's great to have that in a phased approach. And I think particularly for those people that are in the highest risk category, they should be the last ones to come back um, from a remote working uh, environment. And I do think there's some dependence on what does that work environment look like? Do you work in an office by yourself? Or are you in an open environment where you're very close to others? There is a lot of debate right now regarding schools, K through 12, as well as higher education. But let's just talk about K through 12. Some op- opponents of closing them or keeping them closed or regulating them say, hey, you know, young people don't get it. No big deal. Open up the schools. Make sure they're open in the fall. Is, what's the counter argument to that? Yeah, well, the I guess part of the counter argument it is is it is very true that those in young younger folks are less likely to get severe disease, and the older you are, the more likely you are to get severe disease. Um, but the the part of this this disease that really has been the conundrum is that some people can get severely ill with with less predictability. Of course, those who have a pre existing con- conditions do, but we've we've also seen other people who we really scratch our head. Why did they get so so sick? So be, being cautious still, I think, is a is a good plan. We're hearing at least some tentative reports of children getting an inflammatory disease that that's related. Uh, where are we on that research? Is that something that parents or school systems? should be concerned about going into the fall. Yeah, and I think that really is, particularly if you're in areas of, um, you know, kind of the highest penetration of, of disease. We've seen this um, this inflammatory disease that um, in, in various different age groups, you know, causes a, a vasculitis-like, you know, or inflammation of the vessels on kind of on illness and on, with some pretty severe uh, outcomes as the result on, of that. And that's where we're learning more about this um, uh, disease as, as it's been marching across uh, America. As we're learning more about the disease, it, 
it seems to be changing. And I think maybe that is part of the problem with mom and dad at home uh, trying to figure out what to do and what to do with their lives. Um, we hear symptoms have changed from the beginning. In the beginning, it was like you had to have a fever and a cough and, and a couple of other things. And now we're getting reports that some people have had, had severe COVID reactions without having coughs, without having things. Uh, we hear people say, don't touch your groceries till you wipe them off. Don't, don't touch uh, door handles. Now we've got the CDC coming out and say, um, maybe not. That's, you know, it might not be the you know, best way of transmitting the disease. There seems to be shifting ground or a changing landscape. How does the average person deal with that? I know from a medical standpoint, you got to be seeing different things almost daily. But how does the average person be able to consume all of that information and make reasonable decisions? Right. You know, what I think about with that is on um, what's the risk and what's the reward of, of any decision that you're uh, that you're making on uh, here. And so what's the what's the risk of or you know of wiping down groceries um, before you bring them into the house versus the reward on um, and so that i think that's part of the way i'd ask people to to be thinking about this i totally believe understand with the mixed messages that uh, are out there it's really hard sometimes to make heads or tails of on um, of what you should do also People who are taking the medical side of this seriously and practicing, continuing to practice social distancing, uh, continuing to wear a mask, are confronted by, it seems, more and more and more people who are not social distancing, who are not wearing masks, uh, I had a medical appointment at a uh, hospital in Columbus uh, this week. Everybody in the hospital was wearing a mask, and you had to have your temperature taken as you went in. But I didn't see anybody outside other than me wearing a mask. Uh, you know, we seem to be living in two different worlds. There's this dichotomy of people who are taking it seriously and people who aren't. How do you function in that kind of environment? Yeah, that's a really tough one, Tom. You know, because I, as you were talking, it made me think about that. You know, famous line from from business that culture eats strategy every day for lunch. And um, <laughs> here, you know, our our culture is not one that's used to having a face co covering compared to maybe some some other cultures. So there's it was a lot there's a lot of work to try to get people to have that be on. Um, you know, kind of acceptable. Um, and th this is where the, the individual, I think, really, it's part of your choice. Do I wear one or not? And then what do I do if I'm coming into contact uh, with others who who aren't, and in particular, in settings where there's larger numbers of people? And, and this uh, would apply to opening up of retail stores and uh, gyms and restaurants and and bars, 
uh, it, it's pretty well across the, the spectrum of local economy. Yeah, completely. And going, you know, going back to you know, some of the talk we had just before here, just because something's open doesn't mean you need to go use it. And what, one thing that I think would be not bad for people to consider is on um, testing or inquiring about what are the practices that they're actually doing. So let's take something as simple as getting your hair cut. You know, are they have they created an environment where there's social distancing and maybe using every other chair? Are they testing people coming in with a, for a temperature? Um, are they on um, escorting people in and out and having nobody in the waiting area or not? Um, and I think those are things that people, if you want to be cautious, you can just call ahead. You can um, observe first before, um, you know, using a facility, uh, which may give you a little bit more comfort if they are, um, very conscientious in following the current recommendations. Obviously, uh, I, I and you live in a, a college community. Um, I was driving around uh, last weekend and during uh, the week this week, and I saw uh, large gatherings of people, young people, uh, older older people as as well. Anybody who follows the news have seen pictures from Wisconsin and other places of bars being jam-packed with people, people not following the guidelines of governors and, and, and social distancing. I found myself as a person who's trying to be prudent and a person who wears a mask anytime I'm out in public and try to limit those exposures uh, to to the bare minimum, I felt myself getting angry with those right. people who were not following the guidelines and were putting me and my community in jeopardy. Is that a normal reaction? Oh, I think so. Especially if you if you think about how much energy and effort people have been putting into uh, keeping themselves and each other. On safe and, and, and healthy on at this at this point, and I I know that some people may even feel like that's it. It can feel like it's reckless behavior in some way. So I think that that sense of um, of, of anger um, is is something really um, valid, and that I'm um, that I've heard from a number of people. So governors, uh, the governor here in Ohio, but other governors around the country have put out mandates for reopening, what businesses have to do uh, to, to reopen. And then they also have sort of a subcategory of best practices that we're not going to say it's mandatory, but it's best practice uh, to do this. My question is, maybe it's my legal background, but my question is, who the hell enforces this? Yeah, that that's a good, that's a really good question because I think they're enforced. There's um, some around some of those recommendations. There's really not a lot of enforcement that you can do, and that's where I think that on um, it comes down to on you and, and where you choose and where you don't choose to, uh, to go on end, uh, you know, whether it's a business or on healthcare or, 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 or any other place. It seems to me, and, and these answers have not become clear, 
that enforcement would have to be part of the local county health organization in Ohio, local county health commissioner, uh, the local police department, and perhaps uh, licensing thing uh, entities, uh, health department licensed restaurants, uh, state liquor control board uh, controls liquor licenses. Right. Is, is that a way to to control some of this? And if if so, is that acceptable? Yeah, you know, I, great great question, Tom, and and. Um, I think the other part of the question is, is it available? So as an example, on a local um, county public health um, office might normally um, be a, a group that would be going around and um, you know, looking at whether people are complying, uh, et cetera. But when they're consumed with um, I, you know, tracing cases on, and, and the reporting on there, uh, some of those activities are just not as, uh, you know, as available uh, right now. We hear our governor here in Ohio and our state public health uh, physician, uh, Dr. Amy Atkin, uh, talk about the rate, and I'm, I'm sure I'm using the wrong term, doctor, so help me out, uh, the rate of transmission that uh, at the height of the uh, pandemic here in Ohio, it was one person would infect four or or thereabouts people or more. Uh, they say now we're down to one person infects one other person. It's a one-to-one ratio. Can you talk about those ratios and how important they are and what they mean to the average person? Yeah, it's, thanks, Tom. So I, I I think I would put it into um, what are the kind of activities that people normally do, and then what, what, what happens with that. And and what's interesting in this disease is that, um, so there was a case of um, one person who was infected, didn't know they were infected, um, wasn't quite feeling so well. Um, this is before things started to shut down. They were a member of a choir with 60 people, uh, and 53 of them became ill uh, as a result. So of course, singing, lots of Corona cloud um, that's going out on um, there. And um, so uh, some of this really comes down to, again, like the activities and the, and the spaces that, uh, that, that people are in. So, you know, what we're worried about is close personal contact, which means from my perspective, like handshake distance away for more than 10 minutes from someone that's, you know, that's infected, particularly without having a mask on. We also hear, and this is from a grandparent in my case, but also parents' perspective, uh, that uh, various organizations across the country are going to allow team sports and team contact sports. And it, coming up it, closest to us is is football. Uh, coming up uh, in the fall with with high schools across the nation. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any greater contact sport here in the United States than football, regardless of all the equipment one has on. 
Uh, how safe is that? At, or is this just wishful thinking on, on the part of various athletic associations? Yeah, well, you know, what I started, what I started to think about is uh, in this, in this space is that but before coming back to activity, most people have to have some sort of um, um, pre-physical, uh, you know, to say that they're, you know, healthy and they can participate. And, and I think at this time, um, if we look at athletics, we're probably thinking about some different screening that needs to be in place to allow those activities to occur on, you know, on, and maybe even on a daily basis. Uh, so that we ensure that that people are are are, are healthy, which we're just not used to. We're not used to um, taking a temperature check on uh, before practice or a testing that you're not you have you have nobody in your family on um, that's sick. Um, as an example, so I, I think we're probably going to have to uh, uh, now going back to a best practice is adopting some things that are screening that we normally wouldn't have ever had to do on for on participation in sports. Then on top of the participation, you have uh, the friends and family and fans of, of sports, everything from major uh, stadiums like University of Michigan and Ohio State and others uh, to the local high school football bleachers. Uh, is it going to be safe come August, September for people to go see grandson Johnny or son Johnny play football? Yeah, and some, some of that will definitely be dependent on what we're seeing for disease in the, in the community. But, you know, the talk of having um, sports without spectators, which is I, – I often think about we may see the reverse of what we saw as the disease was on – progressing. So, you know, for sports, we saw on um, spectatorless sports before sports were off the table. And maybe we'll see the reverse on, of that as well before we're back to what feels normal. You, you know, and one other thing that came to mind. So I'm an athlete. All my kids are athletes. And um, think about the usual fall on um, where you have uh, mom or dad picking up three or four other kids to bring them to soccer. On um, Right. <laughs> I just think, you know, so so our there's there's a potential disruption of our just kind of you know normal way of getting kids to and from uh, from sports that we we might need to be thinking about. The other thing that that I wanted to talk about is um, people who are arguing against reopening so fast. Uh, people who are concerned that. Uh, People are not following social distancing or masking, uh, are looking for what they call a second surge or a surge in, in, in cases. For the average person out there, what should they be looking for to see if this is happening or not? And how long will it take for it to happen? Is it a 10-day, 14-day uh, two or three months. What are we talking about here? Yeah, so I think, and I, I, what I would be using is I'd be looking at uh, new disease in the county or community that you're in, and if you've been seeing a steady decline in new cases, uh, and then all of a sudden an increase, 
Um, that that's what I that's what I'd be looking what I'd be looking out for. And the 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 major problem here is that on um, infectious diseases sometimes don't don't spread on like on like a domino. They sometimes spread more like a brush fire, and so they can just kind of pop up really fast and spread spread fast. But that's what I'd be looking I'd be looking at. Am I seeing? Are, are you seeing less reports in your community? Or are you seeing all of a sudden? On um, you know, it seems like you're, you're hearing or, or reading and looking online more and more cases popping up. I've got a question for you. Uh, it may be a question that seems in the weeds, but I think it's it's relevant to what you were just talking about. Uh, rural counties and suburban counties often have far lower numbers, uh, even lower numbers per capita than urban counties. Uh, our college community that we live in is uh, about an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half from Columbus, the center of the, the state. We have limited facilities within our county compared to those medical facilities in a city like Columbus. So let's so say a person uh, you know, is suspected of having COVID, uh, but may be shipped to Columbus for hospitalization or for an ICU uh, bout, or perhaps uh, they become a fatality while they're in the hospital in, in, in Franklin County or Columbus. Where does all of that get reported? In other words, if you look at low numbers in rural or suburban counties, is that truly reflective of the disease in that county? Yes. So the way, the way that that works is whatever, whatever the residence is of on the person that's been infected, that's, that's where the case on counts. And, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, we're in a college community where we have people from, we draw from all over the state and from around the nation and world. And, um, you know, we, we, we had a, um, if you have a student that's, and um, has, has the disease and the, the, it's the county that they are in at the time that is the one that counts on as the where the where the disease is on. so if somebody is diagnosed in our county which is athens yeah. county ohio uh if they live in athens county even though they're shipped to franklin county or columbus a, a yeah. major metro area within ohio their statistics would still be counted in athens county that's that's correct, and then the the hospital count would then be where wherever if they ended up in Central Ohio in the ICU, that's that's where they would where it would be counted. Okay, so when we listen to the news, uh, we average people out here, uh, we hear people predict uh, everybody from Dr. Bright to others that we're going to have a black winter. It's going to be dark. It's going to be uh, another surge, disease-ridden. Uh, it's predicted that those uh, it'll be even worse than it has been here in the spring. One, 
how do people know that? And two, how likely is that? How do people judge what they hear, whether it's going to be true or not? Boy, that's a great question, Tom. So the most of it is based off of modeling and using, uh, you know, kind of epidemiology, epidemiological models to to try to uh, predict whether you would see uh, disease resurgence or or not or recurrence, and also looking at what ha- what's ha- what happened with past uh, diseases. But it's a little bit like the the stock market or the you know when you when you go to buy some uh, mutual fund, it's that you know past performance can't predict, you know, the, fu- the, the future. And, and I, I do think that's probably something that is also unsettling for everybody as they're trying to plan businesses and K through 12 and in higher ed. Uh, what, you know, what does that, what's that really mean for us? Uh, and this has been a time where I think that we've needed to have the greatest level of flexibility uh, and um, preparedness that we've ever experienced. So let's just take this uh, hypothetical a little further. And and, uh, we hear that some higher education institutions, and boy, we've had them all across uh, the board on what they're doing for the fall. And you and I talked about that uh, last time. But one of the models that sort of emerged since we talked about is bring students back in in the early part of the fall, but then send them home perhaps a little earlier for Thanksgiving and not bring them back to later in the spring. It, is it because the winter is a worse time for this disease? What What is the rationale behind those people who are talking about a model like that? Yeah, that's interesting. It's a variation of the theme of about 15 different right. models that people are exploring right now. Truly, there's 15 articulated. And this one's the shift in calendar, an uh, interesting model of, of shifting or shortening. Uh, and the, the the rationale for that one is to, to not send people home and then immediately bring them back without no. I mean, it's essentially like sending them out exposing them to potential disease, bringing them back, and then needing to manage an entire community. And take Ohio University as an example, we're talking about 16,000 students. And so that's that's a management method to send them home, give a longer break, then to see what on um, what what the situation is looking like there in as we're entering the, the, the winter month and whether they're winter months or whether there's going to be any on any resurgence. You just don't have enough time to react by sending people out and bringing them back. And I think it gives a, a bit of a pause to then help um, people make good decisions about about bringing students back. If you've already answered this, forgive me, but I, it bears repeating. Since we're opening up the, the nation in varying degrees mid-May to latter part of May, those people who are concerned about a surge from reopening, when should we start looking at the statistics to see if that's happening? And what should we be looking at? Incidents of disease or hospitalizations, deaths, ICU encounters? How, what should we be looking at? 
Yeah, I think you, you can look at all of them, but I think the, the incident of disease is the one to take a look at. The um, hospital, hospitalizations and in particular ICU admissions and, and death, those those are later markers. And in particularly, uh, you see um, death as the late, latest marker of what's going on with, with disease in the, in the community. So I, I would suggest that people would be looking at at disease and disease rate in the in the community, and if all of a sudden, you know, you saw less disease and less disease, and now, uh, over a couple week period of time, you see more and more of it. I've got one more area of questioning, and then I'll let you go because I know you're a busy, busy guy. Uh, uh, but hydrochloroquine. We've had a debate now with the president taking it as a preventative. Uh, you and I have talked about it before uh, uh, as a malaria drug, a drug for lupus and some other uh, diseases. We just had a study come out uh, today or yesterday from uh, the Lancet Journal in, in Louisville saying that it can be harmful to, to people. I, I'm not asking a political statement here, but how important is it to follow your doctor's advice and talk to your physician about how a drug such as this would react in your particular history and your particular situation? Yeah, that's a it's a great question, Tom. And and in this case, the worry is that uh, this drug in particular, and if not taken correctly, can cause a a fatal heart rhythm on or, or dysrhythmia as part as part of ta- as part of taking that. So, and I think under the best of circumstances, you have a partnership with your healthcare provider, and you're making informed decisions about about your about your care delivery uh, together, and and really following that that advice closely. And it goes back to, you know, similar, uh, we, the, the three things we always consider are on benefit, harm, and cost. Um, and I think if you're thinking about all three of those with any of your decisions and making that as an informed decision with your healthcare provider, that's probably a best practice. It, it's certainly not something you would want to uh, buy off the internet or get to get yeah, through the black not. market and and self medicate. Correct? No, absolutely not. Doctor Johnson, as always, thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are uh, during this this period. We really appreciate you sort of breaking things down and and translating these things for us. It it really is a great service, and we appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, Tom. I I love the conversations that we have. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Kenneth Johnson, Dean of the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, about the remaining dangers of the coronavirus. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of any of your podcast outlets. 
If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.